Welcome to OK Video, a film-centric chat fest from Cowtown, Calgary, Alberta. I'm Nathan Rohr, formerly of Rogers Video Store 613, and I'm joined as always by Ryan McCullough. Hey there, Ryan here, formerly of many stores, including HMV, where I took advantage of their employee discounts to collect as many hard-to-find Nicolas Cage DVDs as possible, including my rare widescreen Red Rock West. Bragg. Okay, yeah, no, I, well, I watched that same copy, because <laughs> you lent it to me, but yeah, um, okay, I'm so used to, for you to say, I'm here, and I'm excited to be talking with my friend Nathan, but it's, it's cool, it's cool. Okay, uh, I'm here, <laughs> I'm here, Yeah. and I'm excited, so excited to be talking with my friend, Nathan Rohr. That's me, uh, we're talking about Nicolas Cage in this batch, uh, he, this is one of his most critically celebrated films, I would say, adaptation from 2002. It's like the last time the Academy thought he was he was doing great work, which I'm not sure I I like their uh, criteria, but whatever. Uh, it's directed by Spike Jones and written by Charlie and Donald Kaufman. Uh, it was an anticipated follow up to their breakout hit, Being John Malkovich. So I wasn't uh, paying attention to this at the time, but I imagine there was some hype around this movie. Uh it came out in 2002, December 6th, and I guess it was a modest hit, like a critical, you know, Oscar window, decent, but uh, it cost $19 million and made 32.8 worldwide. Oh, that's, so, that, like, that's a good, you know. That's, that's solid. Yeah. That's an, you know. Like, it's not a it's blockbuster, not, but at the same time, it's a movie that stars Meryl Streep, so... And Nicolas Cage, not, like that, the Oscars. Aren't, those aren't money makers. That's not. No, 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 no. Thing. The Oscars, like, the, is what they want is the Oscar buzz. Like, they want the trophies. Yeah, and a lot of acting uh, accolades, I guess, was really the thing with this movie. Um, but yeah, I'm just gonna run you through the summary. I, I just I looked at the book summary, and I'm just gonna give that to you because I mean it's it's the same thing. So, uh, all right, this is right from Random House, uh, the Susan Orlean Orchid Thief novel, or, or sorry. Uh, it's it's a true nonfiction book. A modern classic of per- personal journalism, The Orchid Thief is Susan Orlean's wickedly funny, elegant, and captivating tale of an amazing obsession. Determined to clone an endangered flower, the rare ghost orchid, Polyria lindeni, a deeply eccentric and oddly attractive man named John LaRoche leads Orlean on an unforgettable tour of America's strange flower-selling subculture through Florida's swamps and beyond, along with the Seminoles who help him and the forces of justice who fight him. In the end, Orlean and the reader will have more respect for underdog determination and a powerful new definition of passion. So this is the film of that. Um, Yeah, it's exactly... It's probably the best adaptation I've ever seen of a book, period. Yeah, just true true to the spirit. Uh, Obviously, the, like quirks of this movie are the way the challenges i guess in adapting stuff is really what it becomes the center of why this movie is so fun and interesting uh but any interest in the book from oh my goodness so okay so one of my my close friends matthew nathan knows him he bought my girlfriend the orchid thief for christmas this year oh wow the idea of like oh okay so you're gonna this way you can go and sit down with ryan and watch an adaptation with ryan because I have no interest mm-hmm. in reading this book, but my my girlfriend yeah, likes yeah. like general fiction, like popular top 
10 Oprah Winfrey like type Oprah's books. Oprah's book club. Yeah, yes, this exactly. is, has that kind of vibe Like if it, it was a zeitgeist at one moment in time, she'll probably read it. Yeah. So Matthew bought this book and like I could not care less about this book. And I was like – so we ended up when, – when I watched Adaptation this week, I watched it with, with Ashley and she hadn't read the book yet. And I was like, here, you can see like this, this book is not based on this. Like a fraction of this movie is what the book is about. But the other half of the movie is about how hard this book is to, uh, to adapt. Also yeah. – how bad this book might be well like formless and just kind of ruminating on stuff but there's no structure to it is kind of the well and like just crisis. new york new york nonsense is kind of what <laughs> charlie kaufman's yeah it's just like sprawling new you new yorker shit like yeah, just exactly. like how do you even express this uh so yeah it's I guess I have been doing this more in the past like year or two where I've actually been like reading books that I like the movie of to kind of just compare and contrast. This would probably be one of like the most deeply contrasted like examples because yeah, oh, sure. it it like can't get a handle on the subject matter for the most part. There's like passages in the movie that you can see are like this is so tonally different from like what Charlie Kaufman does. Yes. So this must be from the book. Uh. You know? So, okay, but, like, that's that's true to a point because – but then when you get to the whole third act, that's when oh, Donald yeah. Donald takes when, over. And, yeah. no, and so, like, so far we've talked about the Orchid Thief and I think we – like, let's just get that out of the way. Let's just talk yeah. about the Orchid Thief half because I really just want to dive into the Charlie Kaufman story of this movie because it's my favorite part. Okay, so, oh, yeah. Oh, sure, yeah. So, Susan so, Arlene is uh, a journalist for The New Yorker. She writes an article on uh, John Leroux, who's a very eccentric human being who thinks very highly of himself. Mm-hmm. Like he's the first Smartest to brag guy about himself. He, he's ever known. Yes. Yeah. And he always like talks about like he he kind of trumps up all of his accolades with like education. He's a lecturer and all these things. And we mm-hmm. never really see evidence of any of that in the movie, other than he likes the sound of his own voice and he likes that she's writing stuff down about him. Yeah, there's like a wise ass, like clever thing early in the movie with that like ranger guy who's trying to like stop them from taking all these flowers. Mm-hmm. Just the way he handles that situation is kind of like, okay, this guy's like done his homework a little bit. And he's like, mm-hmm. you can't arrest me. You can't even stop me because like I have these natives helping me and they're legally allowed to take these flowers. Like he kind of ropes this guy and just kind of bamboozles him. Like there's some like, you know, sharpness, I guess. But then he's also like, just like, yeah, I got this porn website I'm setting up, and I'm in the Florida swamps. Like, he's just kind of skeezy, <laughs> too. Yeah, for sure. Like, long, long bedraggled hair and just kind of looks real, really a mess. So, yeah, he's just, you know, eccentric, I guess we've called him, but kind of an oddball. Uh, I, what did the book call him? Uh, oddly attractive man. So Yeah, yeah which I found interesting. I, I don't know how I feel about the casting of Chris Cooper in that idea because i don't find him attractive like and no, nothing about him seems attractive not even to oddly <laughs> no. with the teeth thing too like you know little oh no not in the slightest yeah like, there's nothing about him front front teeth yeah from it like uh, to be fair like that's one of the, my favorite scenes in the whole movie and it's a very straightforward scene is like mm-hmm. that really realistically shot scene of, accident yeah the accident of how of john's like kind of like they just have this one moment of his past and it's a perfect moment to show kind of who he is as a person at this point in time and it's he's backing yeah. out of his driveway and his mom and his uncle are in the back seat his wife's in the front and as he's backing out someone smashes into their car and his mom and uncle die and his wife puts into a coma for three weeks and wakes up divorces him and 
So it kind of just sets him on this. It just this. shatters his life, yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. for the, this movie, like, honestly, mostly reads as comedy to me. And then, like, there's moments like that where it's just like, oh, no, this is, like, very sincere and, like, cuts into reality in a way that's like i guess you'd have to put this in your drama section at, at okay video yes <laughs> maybe like it's hard to really place it it is but hard but i think that's all of charlie kaufman's like catalog sure because like it, even when you watch like eternal sunshine it mm-hmm. has like really funny moments in it but then it's also heartbreaking right oh, and yeah. same with and there's uh, like existential crises and yeah a lot of a lot of emotions all over the place so or being John Malkovich, like, it's funny, but it's also, like, Freudian and, like, just, I don't know, yeah. psychological. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. I'm mostly laughing during this movie, though. Oh, like, for sure. I, it's, like, I'm trying, like, we've kind of, like, gotten into this weird murky place where we're talking about this book we haven't read. And then, like, this book we know Charlie Kaufman has read, but, like, struggled with and, like, <laughs> tried to tried to form into a screenplay. But, like, the structure of the movie starts with what does it start with i think it starts with uh the the narrative like no, the it, john it, laroche in the no jungle. no, no. It, it kicks off with uh with charlie coffin sweating on the across set of the, being john malkovich no, no no sitting across from tilda swinton's character as she tells him and like we see that later in the movie i don't want to get into charlie coffin yet though I, we have to talk about this as two separate movies it's two I separate think, things i think okay. we have to talk about the susan orlean stuff completely Okay. And then we'll t- jump into Charlie Kaufman and then lead into the very end because there are two separate movies here. It's it's very fractured. Yes, it's, it's very fractured yeah, throughout. Yeah. But it's like we're taken through the journey of Charlie Kaufman that tries to adapt this book. And as we learn about what happens in Susan Orlean's books, it's all the failed attempts for Charlie Kaufman to get across what he wants in film but without knowing how to build a larger structure of this book that has no large structure. This book is okay. just kind of like just a bunch of musings around – um what uh obsession and and oh, like all of her in, in interactions with uh john laroe right yeah i guess if we're talking well man it's gonna be tough because <laughs> like there's a passage of this movie late in the movie where it is just her and and chris cooper for a little bit and that honestly was like my least favorite five minutes because <laughs> yep. it just kind of doesn't have the the manic anxiety of Charlie and and Donald like their stuff like it's just kind of all right we need to actually tell a story about Susan Orlean right now and we're going to make up some stuff so mm-hmm. they kind of just have a few minutes there where she's like on the phone with him and like kind of was snorting orchid dust and But again that's part of but that's part of the Charlie Kaufman that's like, the invented stuff. We can't get yeah. to the invented stuff. We have to talk about Susan Orlean. She's a the the movie pr- pr- proposes that she's a a person who is without passion in her life. She lives in New York. She kind of has like a pretty like snooty New York husband. Has a bunch of snooty like super sarcastic New York friends that are making yeah. fun of John Larroe because he's toothless. He's really passionate. He cares about orchids out of all things. He trumps mm-hmm. himself. Like they're kind of talking to him like a rube, like oh this weirdo in Florida. Yeah, like they're making and fun of him in that dinner scene. Type yeah, of thing. yeah. But Susan, there's something about Susan where she's really intrigued by how much passion he has for something. But she's also intrigued by John Larose's long history of just fully giving up on things. Like yeah, he is. I, I, I was, I was kind of like uh, interested in this part because. Like, he kind of gets a passion and then, like, zeroes all the way in on it, collects tons of turtles and stuff, 
and then just drops it. Yeah. And then collects tons of like uh fish. like tropical fish. Yeah. And then and sets up like sixty aquariums and then just stops doing that. Well, and to the and, point <laughs> he even makes this point to Susan in the van that like not only does he just like he just says he's finished with fish one day and it's been thirteen years since he made that decision and he's never been in the ocean again. And he makes the point yeah. to say that he still loves the ocean. He just so he's he just, a man of principle, he, but we, I, it's hard to understand his principles. Right. There's actually a quote from him late in the movie that I found fun because it like stops a thought. It's when they're lost in the jungle. So it's in that kind of murky, like, is this happening? Uh, actually, no, it's it's when they're it's still from the book, I would imagine. Uh, he, he just kind of starts a thought where he's like, it's not really about collecting the stuff. It's and then like gets distracted by something. And I was just kind of like, I've sort of been on like several interest waves over my life where I like collect a bunch of books or something or like really zero in on a author or a director mm-hmm. or something and get a bunch of stuff. And then it's just like, all right, next, next objective. Like, it's not even about, I have like a bunch of James Bond books I bought when I was young and I didn't read them then. And I'm glad I didn't. Cause those are like some playboy magazine, like sixties <laughs> sexism stuff from uh, our buddy Ian. But uh, it was more about having it. Like it yeah. was more about like the quest for these old paperbacks. Like so, mine. Certain this is printing. fascinating because this last week I kind of dived back into an old one that kind of like opportunity came up. I reminded myself I love Superbit DVDs. Do you remember Superbit? Yeah, this is my Superbit is yeah. adaptation actually. Yeah, and Superbit is uh, just one like one of those things I have. I I like to have as many as I can without re- like replacing. Like, I have, like, adaptation on this amazing DVD, like, Blu-ray set, so I, I, I'm not going to get the Superbit adaptation. But okay. every I try to fill in... Anyways, there's this guy online who was selling 20 Superbit movies for t- 100 bucks. I needed at least 10 of them, and I was like, oh, I can flip the other 10. And they were in, like... Some of them were still unwrapping, so I paid for them. But I also... He also fed into this other thing, which is a Criterion set. I bought Robocop on Criterion for $5. Oh, the DVD? Yeah. Nice. I have it on laser, but yeah. like they're not numbered the same. So no, it's kind of no, like, mine's oh, 24, I, I think. Yeah, cool. Anyways, so it's just like, yeah, there's these little things where like this opportunity pops up and I immediately dive into it. And so I started jumping onto eBay again, looking for like, there's like four super bits that I want to replace my DVDs with still. Mm-hmm. And they're hard to get. These I, like, I kind of wanted to ask you what is up with super bit. Is it like better transfer of the yeah, film? So the way that it works is uh, so a DVD has a bunch of features on it right like either multiple audio tracks commentary special features that take up space on the dvd yeah yeah superbit is just the movie like literally a really bare bones menu comes up as soon as the movie starts that's Mm -hmm. just like simple math coding and then the movie goes on and what they do is they just want to put the most amount of processing space on there so there's no ghosting there's no um like shadowing like they can put the highest quality dvd out there without yeah. the other thing. So a lot of my sets, like The Patriot, has a second disc where it has all the special features, including commentary. The first okay. disc is 100% super bit. Yeah, I was kind of like half ready to like jump in some special features, and then I looked at it, it's like, oh, there's just like the trailer on here. Yeah. So I watched that, but uh, it was like, oh, okay, so they're using maximum disc real estate to make the movie look as good as now, they can. Now, your, your adaptation super bit is still a white cover, right? And it yeah. just says super bit in the bottom corner? Uh, yeah, it's yeah. on there a couple times. See, the, yeah. the set that I want, because I have that in Charlie's Angels, the set that I look for is the gray box ones, 
with the gray okay. slipcover that was like a horizontal slipcover. Like you'd slide the movie out horizontally. Oh, okay. And they have these really There's... cool like gray silver cases that they come in. Yeah, so that's I what forget I where I this might have been a video store. Closing no, no. To be fair, adaptation was like that was the main release of it. Okay. On DVD. So if you bought it, anyone bought it on DVD, that was the main release. That's what I had before I bought this new Blu-ray type of thing. The Shout Factory one. Yeah. Okay. So. But uh, yeah, just this idea of kind of like hunting for hobbies and getting really deep in something when mm-hmm. you care about it, and then like moving on. It it something about the that, that kind of. But the thing that me. I think that's yeah. different is like you still have those Ian Fleming books, and I you do, might yeah. and you and you I know you've read them since you bought them I, as a I, kid. I, like as an adult, I've started going through them a little more. Yeah, know. exactly. But the difference this would be is like that, I threw them away because I just don't care about it. That's anymore. the thing. Like the difference is that Susan Orlean's question that she postures in her book, and at least in the film that Meryl Streep narrates, is like it, she's like, if you love something that much, wouldn't some of that love still linger? Like, still like that's be a something, part of you. Yeah. yeah, like, she was, like, she's fascinated by how he can just give up sea turtles and how turtles were so important to him. And then all of a sudden, he doesn't care at all about sea turtles and he burns that whole life down. Here's the thing, like, I collect stuff, but I move, all I kind of do is move around in a circle and then I come back to the original thing. I'm like, not getting rid of it. You kind of orbit back to the same zone, yeah. right? I'm not yeah. getting rid of it. I'm not going to get rid of my Criterion collection. I'm just going to continue adding to it as like, things pop up. Sure. I guess that's, yeah, there's kind of peaks of interest and waves and stuff but it's really when more... like good it's about deals for me like i, I don't want to go out and just be co- a completionist to pay like hundreds of dollars for that one like missing criterion i have it's like oh cool when i can find it for 20 bucks that's when i'll add it to my collection mm-hmm. so that's where the i think it's the collector side is also the deal the deal is also what's exciting for me the thrill of the deal yeah exactly yeah. or like finding that nugget like yeah sure so like if you find a really cheap criterion somewhere Yes. Yeah, like a weird bookstore in Edmonton. Like, and you're just like, like why the is out this even of here? print, hard to get Robocop DVD for five dollars. Yeah. That's such a steal. That's such a steal. And then, but then you like you like the act of getting it was part of the excitement too. Mm-hmm. Like, oh yeah, it's not like I looked just at the, it. I already have. Oh, it on I went Blu-ray. on Amazon and it was there, and I bought it. Yeah, I, mean, I already have it nothing. on Blu-ray. I'm not going to replace. I'm not going to get rid of my Blu-ray. I'm just going to have this like hard to get. Like I put it next to because it's right before Armageddon, so I have it next to Armageddon and The Rock, and those are also ones that are like not easy to come by criterions mm. anymore um so i guess w- if we could start migrating into the yeah that's what Charlie i was about to say stuff. so this movie kicks off yeah right off the bat we know that something's off about this movie because it doesn't open anything to do with the orchid thief it opens with charlie coffin sitting at a lunch table sweating profusely as he has over narration about how nervous he is well like the opening credits his... i loved how spare they were too because yeah. it's just like really plain font and black screen primarily, yeah. and then just like Nick talking, like just anxious thoughts. Well, it's like a like it's inner like, thoughts. It's like they had yeah. a. It was like they shot every line of the script, right? Like it was just because it was at, just at the bottom in typewriter, and it was mm-hmm. like it's like it was just the script happening because the whole movie is setting up the theme of the film. The whole movie is writing a script. Like it's him trying to. It's the whole movie is the process of Charlie Kaufman trying to adapt this book, right? And yeah, it's him with Tilda Swinton, who I forgot was in this movie, but she's kind of, you know, perfect, I guess. She's just this, uh, is she, does she work for the, oh, she works for some film company. Yeah, she's, right? she's clearly like a producer of some sort who wants to, she's out she's there hiring someone. this book and yeah. hired Charlie to write it. So he, yes. she's kind of like the person who gave him the assignment. But here's the thing, like, it's, it's like to... an audition though. Like Charlie wants this book. Like he's there at this meeting because he's trying to pitch himself to take on this book. 
like I'm the right person for this. Yes, exactly. And then like gets more and more into this like uh, I I don't know just this, this anxiety web. hell yes. of like trying to crack the code on this unadaptable book. Well, and not which, even that uh, like unadaptable. Like it's it, to be fair, like everybody in his life points out how the book should be adaptable. Charlie Kaufman yeah. is intentionally he's intentionally breaking himself because he doesn't want to adapt adapted by creating false drama by by having characters learn anything by having characters change by the end like he doesn't want to do write a story which is what's crazy yeah he it's like to i don't want to like i don't want to impose a story structure on this because there isn't one i want to capture the magic of flowers yeah and how amazing they are <laughs> and like, it's like i love i love this one scene with his agent marty he's played by ron livingston oh, it's so good where they're ta- they're talking and it's just like i just want to you know bring that to the world like how amazing flowers are it's like are they amazing yeah and like, I was that's just like, so great are flowers yeah. amazing ron livingston ron livingston in this movie is kind of perfect like he just like interrupting their conversation to comment on women in his office and how he would like to have uh sodomy with them and yeah He's like it's just so, ter- such right a terrible away. bro. But then even later in the movie, there's this great scene where he's like loves this script that nobody should ever love, but he's like it's the greatest thing he's ever read, and he says this to Charlie, who has no respect for the script whatsoever. Yeah. Oh, uh, it's so good. It's okay. So Charlie, like he gets this job, he's super excited. We kind of get a little bit of sense of Charlie's life. There's this girl that he's interested in, but he's 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 scared to you know move it to the next step like it, there's so much anxiety he doesn't know how yeah. to do those things he kind and, of like uh, is just not confident enough to pursue no. her in this one moment with a like a date ending he just yeah. kind of freezes up and drives away and, it's and then like, no no but even then like so the date ends he's like telling us like going for a kiss and then she's like they don't and then she walks to the door and he's narrating to himself like just get out of your car not knock, knock so on romantic. her door just and go up to the door kiss her, yeah. and then all of a sudden just puts it in gear and drives it away it's like a really sad yeah. series of events then enters my favorite character in the entire film. Donald? Donald Kaufman. Donald Kaufman is great, yeah. <laughs> I, I wrote Kaufman. pretty early, I wish he was real, <laughs> you know? Well, like, yeah, but, like, here's the thing. What I love about Donald, uh, and I don't think I really appreciated it until this viewing, yeah. is Donald is the exact, well, it's not, he is the projection of what Charlie wants in his life, or whatever Charlie isn't, mm-hmm. Donald is. So we're like Donald's good with the girls. Like he's super easygoing. He's not anxious. He's kind of simple. Like he's not. He doesn't overthink things. Whereas like Charlie overthinks things to the max. Mm-hmm. Donald gets into writing, and he immediately he's excited gets, about it. And he yeah. want, he he's like he's jazzed up gets about his work. own dumb ideas he, and just he finishes writing. a script right off the bat. His his script is full of over like oversimplified structure. Whereas like. It's all Charlie wants is to make a movie that's like has structure to it. Like he can't just do structure. Donald's really yeah. good at structure, even mm-hmm. though it's stupid. Like it's the oh dumbest. The dumbest. Their conversations for a movie. about like the logistics of his psychological thriller screenplay the three? are the three are <laughs> so funny to me because like he's just like you realize there's no way to write this. Like you can't have one character investigating the crime that they're also yeah so like, his big thing in a basement <laughs> his big thing is that there's this whole movie where this cop is pursuing a, a serial killer but the serial killer is writing love letters to the police officer throughout this whole time and then at the end the twist of the movie is the serial killer and the cop are the same person and charlie yeah. just immediately starts tearing this concept apart and donald's solutions were trick photography trick photography <laughs> like- which they're using right then. Which to have they're two using in this scene. 
This yeah, movie is yeah. so clever on so many levels. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. And so my favorite line that I still cracked up so hard that Ashley kind of had to stop it because I was laughing so hard was <laughs> so they're sitting down for breakfast. Maggie Gyllenhaal's there and she's like, oh, you got to hear the idea that Donald came up with last night. He's like, cool, cool, cool. So yeah, there's going to be a big chase scene in this movie and it's going to be, you know, the serial killer on a motorcycle and the cop on a horse. And the way I was thinking about it was like, it's going to be, you know, the, uh, the mashing of images of like motorcycle and horse of technology versus horse. <laughs> You're just yeah. Like, this is so dumb. That line was honestly like how my friend Cody like pitched the movie to me. I hadn't seen it yet. And he was like, Oh, you got to see this movie. And then like, that was like his go-to joke from the movie. They thought was the best. And it's like center in the trailer for this movie too. Yep. It's like, this is like the contrast between these two brothers and like, what stresses out Charlie and he's like, I can't write that. That's the dumbest thing ever. And then like technology versus horse on the other end, like just the lighthearted, like it's fun. I like writing. It's fun. Yeah. <laughs> kind of like thing that's going on for this is honestly like probably the first time I've seen this movie in a long time since like I got way into like the Coen brothers and it was like hard. Like I've sort of just developed this mental, like, like a uh, character for each Coen brother as like, Joel is Charlie and Ethan is Donald. Like Ethan's the funny Cohen, you know? Sure. And I don't know. It's like not necessarily fair, but it's like that is he, he like created his own like funny Cohen brother character to bounce ideas off of yeah. in this movie for himself. Uh, bounce or... ideas off. Charlie has almost wants nothing to. He begrudgingly involves Donald at the end of the film. Well, that's the thing. Like Charlie's like unconsciously like really script helping donald a lot yes like he's actually like giving him these dumb like ideas he thinks is dumb like the deconstructionist (laughs) serial killer and then it's like that was that was a joke let's just tell everyone the deconstructionist is the serial killer where what he does is he he cuts off little pieces of him um until he dies and of the victims yeah and he's named the deconstructionist and then donald's like wow that's really good no joke (laughs) it's a joke donald do you mind if I use it? Like, he's the best just like, is that his adaptation to it is even less clever because it's like, no, my killer now, uh, he, he just cuts off them. pieces of it that feeds it to him until the person dies. And you're like, what? That's, that's, that, all that's right. not clever. Yeah. But anyways, but like, okay, sorry, which, which like, of the Coen brothers is married to Francis? Uh, Joel. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's not necessarily fair it's not based on any interviews or anything because they're kind of like off on their own little minnesota world so when you're saying like when fargo happens when hail caesar happens when oh brother we're out though happens you think that's an ethan movie but then when if it tilts more comedy i call it an ethan movie if it tilts more (laughs) drama i say oh it's the joel Joel so what do you do with fargo Oh, like that. Then there's the occasions where there's like great harmony, you know. Great. Okay. So they're like both. they're really in sync. So you're saying like a serious man and no country are Joel movies. Those are those are the combos. Like oh no 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 ser- no no country far. is not funny funny. It's like more serious with some funny. It's not Fargo that's, funny. That's the sweet spot for me though. But that's but Fargo is the opposite of that. Then there's way more funny in Fargo than there is serious. Like Intolerable Cruelty is Ethan. <laughs> yes i understand I what you're saying you're saying the movies you don't like as much are ethan the movies that you love no it's not Joel. that because straightforward because it is like, because you just said intolerable stuff. cruelty i did which is probably the yeah the lowest one uh, or lady it, killers lady killers might be down there yeah 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 but, but like no but okay. fargo is the, like okay so if there was like a balancing bridge which is like perfectly in the middle which perfect is perfect balance perfect balance 
Fargo yeah. is on the side of comedy and No Country is on the side of drama. Oh, okay. Thriller. Like there's still yeah. comedy in both, but there's way more silly stuff going on in Fargo because it's all, mm-hmm. all inherently silly because it's Minnesota and they have those accents. The dark comedy. Yeah. Of and it. then like, on No Country. <laughs> like closing just like the a, door and there's the like accordion poster. Like yeah. that's that little like, ah. But No Country, like Antoine. Uh, Sugar. Sugar. Yeah. Sorry. Is so terrifying. Like he is humorless and not funny. It's it's yeah. really when Tommy Lee shows up and uses his dry wit to make things funny, but Josh Brolin's Any more bodies not funny. out there like that kind of yeah yeah. So yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Anyways, I, I, know. I think I it's, agree with you, and I get fair. that it's idea. Just, this movie also really put me in a state where I was thinking about Barton Fink a lot because hmm. it's like another creative crisis, like writer sitting as typewriter trying to figure it out kind of thing. And I thought it was really funny how. That movie, like with no postmodern, like uh, meta narrative layer to it, also has like guns in the third act and like crazy stuff starts happening because well, it's Dante's Inferno. Yes, but so like, he gets to the lower levels of hell where he's just being like everything is going to shit. But it it kind of comes into like it has that ending that gets you and like the yes the action hits the wall, but it doesn't like get there like with uh it doesn't signpost it for you like that. It's got to get entertaining, <laughs> you know, like you can't just have a movie with uh to in a hotel room for two hours. Like you need to have something happen. So like his friendly friend becomes like this demon character and is running around with the shotgun. Like it gets entertaining in the same sort of way. Yeah. But... I don't, but I would make the argument. It makes it sound like somebody's told the corn brothers that they can't do it that way. I'd say like that was always like this, like even when we watch like forty eight hours, it's just it's the digressing. Like things start start off really light, and then they get worse and worse and worse throughout the night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, with the hours that go on. Um, really quick, did you know that Joel's making a movie without Ethan? That's crazy. It's called Macbeth. So now we'll finally see what a real Joel... it's Macbeth. He's making mm-hmm. a Macbeth adaptation with Denzel and Francis. Okay. Weird. Yeah. It's so weird. <laughs> but I'm I'm there for it. I guess. Anyways, uh, um. Yeah, Going back I, to- I don't know why it was just it was uh like their their work was on the mind just with the brother screenwriters and mm-hmm. and the Barton stuff was kind of really talking to me in this this time around. But I wouldn't but, be shocked uh, if, if Charlie Kaufman at some point had thought about that. Like like the filmmaker he mentions by name is Fellini, mm-hmm. like uh, in relation to like a creative struggle becomes the story and like that sort of thing. But and mockumentary i guess is like mm-hmm. the last new genre and all all that but i don't know if the stuff about this movie that really resonated with me is just that kind of creative anxiety of like not being worried that you're just kind of not doing anything original and like you're just recycling stuff and like charlie's resistance to like rules and like hey i put the 10 commandments of a uh, film com- film like uh writing yeah, on your wall it's yeah, just yeah. like i have to crumple this up like right now <laughs> here's the thing like, and what's fascinating to me about charlie as a character and something i think i would appreciate a bit about charlie's own like writings of himself and the journey he he made as his character self go on in this movie is yeah. that like being john malkovich at the end of the day has a crazy plot but it has some very central human themes in it mm-hmm. like it's about loss it's about fear of death it's about um love lost and gain like something i really appreciated about this movie and i, I appreciate it even more this time just because like uh as i've gotten older i've kind of like 
thought a little bit about like, what do I want to offer this world? Do I want to find something new and creative or do I just want to add to the wealth of good stories that they're already there? Robert McKee's like yelling fit that he has at Charlie is actually yeah. like, I know that the movie plays up Robert McKee as like this really like, oh man, he's the problem with the film industry. But then Charlie writes him in such like an amazing like rant that he has at Charlie and just mm-hmm. like puts Charlie in his place that like, if you can't find human, if you can't find human themes and human stories to be of interest, then you shouldn't be a writer. Yeah. And that there Brian is. Brian Cox like has such a great, like he's there twice maybe, but he mm-hmm. has like an amazing delivery in those scenes. Like, oh yes. There's this like kind of like aura around like, oh, Robert McKee's doing this lecture and all this kind of stuff. But then he actually like really bl- knocks it out of the park in oh, the, sure. his few moments. It's awesome. Yeah. But, uh, is that a real dude, I guess? Robert yes, McKee? No, Robert McKee is a real guy who who puts on these seminars and things like that. And and like Charlie, like I really appreciate that Charlie kind of like gave him a nod of the hat because he kind of is seen as like a guy who's like, you go see him when you just want to like have a straightforward screenplay that's like nothing new and crazy because he doesn't do that stuff. But But at the end of the day, like Robert McKee's point is that the human story, whether whatever crazy thing you put that your character on, it still has to have a human story at the center of it, right? That's why, like, Lord of the Rings, despite the fact that I've never dealt with hobbits and magic rings and and dark overlords and wizards and stuff like that, I can still care about those characters because there's a human story thread throughout it all, right? Mm-hmm. Like and just so, two friends encountering in crazy odds and whatnot. Like, and there's yeah. a journey of, like, of suffering and change that happens through suffering. Like there's some yeah. really good stuff that happens in that story, despite the fact that the elements of that story are not relatable. The well, or or like the clerks two criticism of just like so it's like two guys walk to a volcano and throw a thing in like yeah blame like or whatever like here let me let me do the first movie for you like it's <laughs> just the third this, movie like, he's just walking yeah. and he's like let me go back to the second and then to the third. Okay. It's a funny bit, it's but funny it's bit. like there. But there's then, so much I don't like on that whole the journey bit that's the the meat there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Ugh. um, but my point is like, I think what Charlie kind of like sits down, and I think it's kind of beautiful that Eternal Sunshine came out after this, which also has some crazy ideas and crazy themes. But at the end of the day, Eternal Sunshine is probably the most straightforward narrative he's ever done. Mm-hmm. And that like, like it's love just about and a regret. And, yeah, it's just yeah. about a dude who misses his 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 uh form of love and he wants those memories erased and it's him going through his psyche and it's like it got some crazy stuff in it but the narrative is never really hard to lose whereas it's Mm -hmm. hard to lose sometimes in other like i'm thinking of synecdoche where we're sitting there being like what is happening to us yeah i've only seen it the one time it's been on my shelf for a long time like i have thought about seeing his newest movie before we did this because i I, last week i foolishly declared this is his masterpiece (laughs) and i felt like i really shouldn't have hyped myself into a corner where it's like you better not like like Anomalisa more or something because I've seen it subsequently or whatever. Yeah, yeah. No, but here's but the thing: like, I do, I do still. I think I agree with you that like this is the my favorite thing that he's done. I love. I just love how much like uh, suffering for the art or whatever is in here. Like mm-hmm. how much like sweat and tears and everything that like comes into this. Like it's not just like I had an idea and I wrote it and there it is. It's mm-hmm. like no, there's struggle and I like the struggle. So me, it, I think it still does resonate more with me than than Eternal Sunshine and Synecdoche. But oh, for I, sure, I, jury's out on this new one. <laughs> jury's so. out on this new one. I've not heard. I've heard good things, but not like amazing things. No, like it's yeah, it's, yeah. 
Whereas like adaptation was a zeitgeist film when it came out. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. No, I don't know. Like there's something about, so, okay. There's this amazing sequence of events that happens that like when he first goes to the Robert McKee um, conference, he's yeah. narrating. There's this like this panic that sets him, that sets over him. It's Cause like, he's just like, what am I doing here? This is like, everything I hate about the world. Everything I hate about writing everything. I'm a sellout. Blah, 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 I'm, I'm a fake. It, yeah. He's being inundated. And all of a sudden, Brian Cox's like voice just booms over top of this voice. And he says, God help you. If you use voice over narration to show what a character's thinking and feeling. And yeah. it stops. It stops in a moment for the rest of the movie until the very, 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 very end, which he then calls himself out for doing it. But it's it like, stops. oh, no, I'm doing it again. Uh, it feels right. Yeah. Like, I got to do it. Yeah. yeah. And there's just so many good moments where, like, the movie reflects what's happening in Charlie's life, in real life, or whatever it is. Like, he mm-hmm. hears Brian Cox say, don't do voiceover narration. And then all of a sudden, voiceover narration stops in the film. He invites Donald to come to New York with him. And all of a sudden, Donald kind of starts taking over the reins of the film. Right? Oh, like he he's the one with enough courage to go talk to Susan. He's and... the... Okay. Donald comes to New York City and all of a sudden, Susan is on, like, sneaking around. She sneaks back to... There's drugs involved. There's... Oh, that, that whole thing. Yeah. It, it's more... I love the scene where he has a chance to meet Susan. Like he runs into Tilda Swinton at a restaurant by accident. And she's like, Oh, this is perfect. Susan's right here. Like you could just talk to her about it. And there you go. And he's just like, Oh, like he has this amazing panic where it's just like, I cannot be in a scene with Meryl Streep right now. Like I have to run away. And like, there's a shadow in the hallway. She's coming. And in all fairness, he did just masturbate to her. I think the night before. Oh, the book cover scene. I yes. I wrote down the dust jacket scene too because I thought that was just weird and kind of great. Like just the way the photos are changing. Yeah. Like as as her voice is there, and yeah, there's a lot of self depreciation with uh, Charlie and just masturbating mm-hmm. and just like living in this like d- dingy space. And <laughs> I don't know. No, what's great like, about what it is that up- it's so brutally honest. Like he's not like he's not fantasizing to like se- explicit sexual acts. What he's fantasizing towards is emotional intimacy and like mm-hmm. and not just that i shouldn't say that actually not emotional intimacy he's fantasizing towards this like holy grail where a woman finds him fascinating and he doesn't have to do a lot of work mm-hmm. like so. isn't there even a scene with tilda just being like this is really great this is a great screenplay yes <laughs> and then cut to like oh <laughs> like, yes. it's just like thank you for finally complimenting me yeah it's just this weird yeah like moments and then donald meanwhile is just freewheeling around with maggie gyllenhaal and and like just Catherine Keener comes over to the house and he's so jealous of it type of thing. Yeah, because there's this great scene on like the Being John Malkovich set where like Charlie's there and he's just super sheepish and like, hey, hey. And, and like, John Cusack really walks and just gives him. him a weird look type of yeah, thing. Yeah, just, all right, just, you know, and he, he can't talk to Catherine and they're there. I love them like recreating the making of that movie. Yeah. Like, like, I'm just a rube. Like, first time I saw this, I swear I would have been like, oh, wow, they, like, planned ahead. And like, <laughs> it's like, no, how, no, no. why would they do that? That opening shot, to be fair, that opening shot is a real piece of behind-the-scenes footage. John, footage. like, yes. talking about all the other yes. Johns? Oh, And then okay. they spliced in a shot of Nicolas Cage. But then they did rebuild the small hallway set and had John yeah, Cusack yeah, and Catherine like, Keener come back. There's set stuff from being John Malkovich being worked on. Yes. And, okay. 
because yeah i just totally bought into this like wow what an amazing like foresight <laughs> yeah but it's incorporating behind the scenes that makes more sense than we're we're setting up a bunch of john malkovich masks again yeah, just yeah. for this one thing that that's john actually how the movie opens that is exactly yeah. how the movie opens that's right that's right man this is what's kind of great is throughout this whole movie there's a couple of moments like, for where me, he the has opening that stuck with me was the four billion forty years ago. Yes, but that's like, like fifteen minutes into the movie, and then like that's one of his false starts that he's like yeah. recording notes. But about. he incorporates like, all of the starts in the movie in the yeah. movie. Yeah, and it's almost like, like Spike Jones got the real starts. Flowers. Mm-hmm. Like the oh, that's the when the stuff. Spike Jones stuff kicks in. Really, yeah, yeah is the four billion years ago. I love that joke, but yeah. Um. um well, anyways, sequence. so yeah, like. There's something about the structure of that last sequence that, like, it becomes, like, so essentially what it is is, like, Charlie Kaufman's in New York. He wants to go meet Susan, wants to figure out who she is because he realizes he has to write the story about her. Like, that's what has to happen. And then, but he's terrified to go meet her. So he goes to the Robert McKee thing and he meets with Robert afterwards and he's like, you got to figure out who Susan is. You got to find the heart of the story. So... Charlie makes the hard decision and asks Donald to come and join him and help mm-hmm. him write his screenplay in New York City. And mm-hmm. then as soon as Donald shows up, Charlie finds like Donald goes and interviews Susan and Susan's lying to him. So they're, they're spying on Susan and she's like hiding from her husband. Then she buys a ticket to Florida. Then she goes to Florida. Then there's like- drugs involved. <laughs> And the only it's reason why a, they're the ghost orchids a thing? It's absurd scene because they're just like, all right, we're across the street with some binoculars yes. and we can just see everything that's happening on her computer Tampa, screen. Okay, Bay. she's buying a United flight to Miami. Like, it's yeah. just like, how can you see that? Like, it's like the laziest hacking or whatever. But it's and, like, but it's like, yeah. so, because it's, it's, it is what Donald would do to pro forward, like, push forward the get story. Just the story rolling. Just yeah. let's get going. And yeah. then, like, uh, they go to New York and then they go to the to Florida and then they find out that the ghost orchids are not about like propagating the ghost orchid. It creates this rare drug, kind of like a green cocaine that you snort. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like and it then, just adds all this like criminality to yeah. it that wasn't there at all. Charlie, like Charlie, goes and and sees Susan and uh, John in like the throes of passion, and they bust him, and then they realize like. He can't know about the drugs and the and affairs, so that so Susan decides that she's gonna she has to kill Charlie. Then there's this <laughs> chase through the swamp, and it spends all night long. And then they finally morning comes. They drive away. And honestly speaking, I know the movie had gone off the rails at this point, but there's something really beautiful about Donald's death scene, like genuinely beautiful, because it mirrors oh, okay. what happens to John. And I I believe that Charlie, while writing it, had a real moment as a person. Like to create a like symmetry between the two. No, I'm saying like that he he mourned the death of something like it's like like almost like himself. Yeah. Yeah. Death of himself that like he's going to marry like he he loves so many things about Donald that what he should do is he should adopt Donald into his own life. Like as as a person. And I I saw that as the symbolism like Donald dies because it no longer is a separate part of him. It becomes mm-hmm. part of him because as the movie goes on, he becomes more confident. He finishes his screenplay. He talks to a girl and like tells her he loves her. Like he, yeah. he kind of incorporates the lessons he learned from Donald into his life. 
Mm-hmm. And so there's something really beautiful about Donald's death scene, which I was sitting there being like, I kind of wish Donald was a real person, so this death oh, would be wait. real. Yeah, no, I wrote a note too. It's just like, uh, it's terrible, but hilarious. Yes. Like, everything that's happening is so absurd right now, but like, this is still like a gruesome accident, and it's like, not- Oh, man. And what what a way to incorporate, like, so there's this earlier gag in the movie where Donald has this idea of including a musical number in the middle of his thriller film. And he wants, like, he's like, yeah, the Casablanca, one of the best screenplays of all time, has a musical number in the middle. So I thought I would just add a musical number in the middle of it. What do you think about Happy Together by the Turtles in the middle of my thriller film? And then, yeah. beautifully, like, Spike Jones and, like, Chris Charlie Kaufman figure out how to incorporate Happy Together in a beautiful, in, like, this death scene. And it's not, like, it's not awkward and out of place. And it's kind of pretty that Charlie starts singing to his brother. Well, he's to down. try to like wake him up again, yeah, yeah. to make him happy. Uh, <laughs> I don't know, man. There's like, there's so many like Charlie's one of those guys that can make my heart feel something, even when my head is like cognitively disconnected because there's something crazy going on. Yeah, that third act is like so off the wall that it's like probably the one I connect with the least because it's just so silly. But it's like the culmination of like the whole struggle to do this mm-hmm. and to make it a movie. <laughs> so like, yeah. And I did actually like just the little like after Donald is shot, like they have a moment just before the accident where they was like, I, sh- I just got shot. It's like, shut up. Like they're just having this weird yes. jovial moment just before the accident that I thought really played. Yeah. Uh, but I don't know. It's, it's hard to say like off the rails versus like what, what could it have done? That's like the whole problem with the adaptation. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm not sure. It oh, does, no. it does I think, kind I of think consciously the rails... like fold back on stuff, even as it's like making up stuff. Like they justify this like scene early with Matthew, the native who's like touching like Meryl Streep's hair and is like, Oh, it's because he was on the drugs. Like, yeah, they, but like, like that steals away that moment's trueness from the book. I would say. Oh, is that like a the orchid thief moment? Yes, that's an actually like, in the recognizes book. Recognizes the pain. Yes, that she carries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then they, but then he finds a clever way to make it part of his new movie. Here's the thing, though. Like, I agree with you that it goes off the rails and it's silly, but I think it's an actually perfect ending to the movie that he was building from the beginning by introducing Donald as a character in the movie at the beginning. Mm-hmm. This movie would be really dumb if Donald Kaufman didn't exist as a character. Because then it would just be... To... Well, it would just yeah. be Charlie being lazy as a writer. But because he adds Donald into the feature, mm-hmm. he then builds this movie that is beautifully silly because Donald is now a character within this play. Mm-hmm. So and like, then it becomes, like I guess, sort of about the Hollywoodification, but like trying not to do that. And like, But at the same time, it's about true. like the beauty in anything that you can yeah. find you can make beauty even when it's silly nonsense mm-hmm. and i think that's the something scene, that he needed to he needed to learn as a writer the the scene i felt like really captured like the two authors voices maybe was like the there's a scene where susan's at an orchid show talking about all the different flowers and what they look like and mm-hmm. then it's like crosses into charlie talking about all these different women and what they look like mm-hmm. and it's just this kind of like okay like they're like it's like these two artists are like kind of like on weaving the same into wave. each other type of thing, right? Yeah. Well, it's it like Charlie's creating this... it, but like, but he isn't. He isn't inspired by flowers. He's inspired by women type of thing, right? Like he, right? His women attracting women, finding love, 
being loved is his ultimate goal. Whereas, like, mm-hmm. uh, for Meryl Streep's character, Susan Orlean, her, her ultimate goal is finding passion. And so she's trying yeah. to understand this, th- what, what draws John LaRoe's passion, which is flowers. Yeah. No, so. it, it was just kind of like a neat, like, using the same structure of language to kind of, like, mirror, like, harmonize each other's thoughts. And, like, you see these kind of... Or, or when he's researching and, like, has these little flights of, like... Charles Darwin with like yeah. like waxy candles all around him writing stuff and mm-hmm. like connecting with artists and authors and scientists like through time like all these kind of little and then you get the little flashes of like Spike's inventive like uh, eccentric kind of staging and things yes that, that like his like well his filmmaking it. ability yeah yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah so I don't know it's like moments work in in kind of fun combinations. And I, I still get jazzed about that stuff. Like the bees and the and the flowers scene mm-hmm. is just like shot really beautifully and kind of just well, and its special of, effects works sort really of well. makes flowers amazing. Yeah, <laughs> like you like, know, and, it and its special it. effects work really well. Like those, like those bugs still look really good for a low budget special, like not a special effects film. Mm-hmm. So, so I don't know. It's just it's a it's a complicated movie, and mm-hmm. I I still kind of don't know how to like rationalize saying it's like a masterpiece or anything like i feel dumb that i said that oh but no it's, it, do not it's feel still... dumb i'm i'm gonna take back what i said giving you a hard time i'd actually make the argument that like this movie is one is very very smartly written and acted and conceived like mm-hmm. i sat there being like kind of amazed by the structure in which he was building this movie i i i'm i'm gonna go with you like this is his masterpiece so far I kind of want to talk about Nick, though, in this movie, like, specifically, since he's our focus. Like, I read an IMDb trivia note, and I know we're, you know, those are, you know, sure, problematic. Sure. Go ahead. But it was basically saying, like, this was a movie where he really did take a lot of direction and, like, didn't uh, follow his actor's instinct and, like, kind of go for the big mm-hmm. vampire's kiss, bad lieutenant kind of stuff. Like, he's playing as scripted to some extent. Oh, sure. and. I guess I I don't know. Like I felt looking at it, there really isn't like that signature cage. But like, I think uh, you're right. There's no there's or... no shaman neo shamanism version of Nick Cage out there. But like, like there's little flickers of like some of that energy in Donald sometimes. Like when he's at sure. this party, he's kind of being really silly. But here's the thing, though. Like see, but... Nick, we have to like for me to argue, make the argument that Nicolas Cage is like this generation's greatest actor. It it can't just be from his neo shamanism. Like he can't. It can't just be on the bold choices he makes in some films. He also has right. to be just a great actor. Yeah. Like when you watch Leaving Las Vegas, it, there's zero neo shamanism. Like he's not going over or above. He's just a broken man throughout the whole movie, and you feel broken because of it. Our mm-hmm. next week's movie is also going to be that same way, and I think this movie just shows you, like this movie in particular adaptation. Just shows that like he he can also be a chameleon, and that's what's great about it. Because I sat there mm-hmm. watching him, being like, I didn't see Nicolas Cage the action star, or Nicolas Cage the overactor. I saw mm-hmm. Charlie Kaufman. Mm-hmm. Like I saw a dirty, gross man with really bad hair. <laughs> I, I I meant to shout it out in uh, Red Rock actually because I I appreciated it there too. I love. Uh all the good PR work he's doing for just hairy chests. Yes. Because <laughs> like, I'm a pretty hairy dude. And it's just like, there you go. Just like, no, no shame. <laughs> just like, well, really that was fuzzy. a, that's a, he is a hairy guy, but he's also, that was a fat suit. That was a, like, 
from his just above his pecs down. Oh sure, suit. I just mean the upper fuzz zone For that sure. he's got going For on sure. as as Charlie just bummed out in his bed all the time. Uh, but it, it looks better to, to like a, a decade earlier in Red Rock West, I guess. Sure. Like when that's yes. actually, yeah. But I'd say, I but, make the uh, argument that like, this is, you're right, like, this is not Nick doing this any the most of restrained flourishes. or like. Yeah, he's not doing yeah. those flourishes, but, but to be a great actor, it's, when does a, when does a role call for those flourishes? When does a movie call for that flourish? He did, mm-hmm. this movie did not call for it. And if, if it had yeah. been, it would have been lazy on Nick, Nick's part to rely upon those flourishes to get across something. I guess I just find it weird that, like, this is the last time, like, the Academy types were really drawn by an important performance of his, because mm-hmm. it's, like, him doing the least of his magic, you know? What we would consider like, magic. They Again, they only appreciate this stuff from him, though. Because Leaving sure. Las Vegas and this were the only two, uh, only two Oscar nominations he got. Yeah. So, but then, like, you know, Bad Lieutenants years later, it's like, nah, it's too, too off the wall or whatever. Correct. There's, like, yeah. again, like, he's... Because he's got a he's got a depth in the library, so like when I talk to people and people like make arguments at me like that like that Vampire's Kiss is too silly over the top like he's not taking this art seriously, I point towards what well, you want to see what he when he takes it seriously I point towards adaptation and bringing out the dead and uh, leaving Las Vegas as like examples of where like no he's taking this seriously he takes this like seriously. he absolutely can do it it's just you know just depends on the role. If, if if this Thai thriller doesn't call for that, then that's not gonna that's not gonna happen, <laughs> you know. Okay. It's the worst example. Bangkok this is the Dangerous. The worst but... example you could come up with because Bangkok Dangerous is just so pitifully boring. But anyways, yeah. Um, he and he fails. Like I mean, he's gonna fail. Every every great person still fails, and Bangkok <laughs> is a great example of that. But my point well, is like it's on, that's also this like the movie that comes to mind when like I I love that there's monologues in this movie about like being stressed out about balding yes and like not wanting to like admit that you're losing your hair and then it's like this struggle would happen for nicholas cage it it is happening like yeah yeah. like i feel bad for the guy because i'm just like man like it's like when i hear about robert downey wearing high heels and like making special shoes so he can be taller and i'm just like man like at the end of the day like just and i can't say this because i'm a six foot tall guy with all my hair in my head so it's hard for yeah. me to just to say this, but like I grew up with a dad who was balding at age 25 and he just never cared at all. He mm-hmm. just never cared. And I always took that as an example of like, I was like, I would always make fun of him as a kid and he just never cared because he was like, I have no control over this. Like I have zero control over my hair. Yeah. It's so, nothing I'm doing that's making me no. lose my hair. So he's yeah, just yeah. like, I just, I can't do anything about it. So why, why worry about it? But I just, right. I do know so many men that struggle so deeply. Like I have a friend who shaves his head now for his mental health because he was waking mm. up and just seeing his receding hairline in the, in the, in the mirror and just like feeling terrible. Just eroding his confidence. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. Anyways, but, but my point is okay. like Nick, because next week's movie is also going to like, it's, it's going to even be more of what happens this, this week. Like adaptation is a fun movie, but bringing out the dead kind of is like not, not fun. I love it, but it's not fun and has mm. like a more serious turn by Nick Cage. I mean, there's anxieties in in both, but it's just a different, different tone. Yeah, different completely mood, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I I I still can't get over how like perfect the the twin special effects are in this. Uh, there's like, moments. I saw moments. This time. Are there? Okay. So like, I was uh, just drawn in. Like the, I know the way they're staging stuff. So there's a couple seems, scenes. Yeah. Uh, one that always popped out to me. I'll t- I'll show that at the end. But there's one. At the very beginning of the movie, when he's walking up the stairs and we see Donald through the mirror, 
There's okay. like, like he's walking up the stairs and then we see Donald through the mirror sitting on a couch yelling up at his brother. That's an actor uh, wearing a Nicolas Cage mask like the the John Malkovich Max. Oh, okay, okay. okay. And then there's another scene. The other scene that has always bugged me because it's just a really weird edit that I assume they were, for whatever reason, couldn't get it right. So at the end of the movie, they're both falling. They're both sleeping in the swamp, and we get a shot of Charlie with Donald's head on his shoulders. Or no, we get yeah. a shot of Donald with Charlie's head on his shoulders. Donald stands up to look around, and the way that Donald's stunt double, like body, I mean Charlie's body double, is sitting, is not the way that Nicolas Cage is sitting at all. When they cut to him after Donald stands up, that is that Mark Coppola kind of standing in. I think is the I would, I would idea. assume so. Yeah. I just I just thought it was funny that his name, like he was also in Vampire's Kiss at some point, so it was just like, oh, there's that name again. But yes, no, like he's right up on his shoulder, and then the the shot after Charlie stands up is a little weird. Yes. I guess you're right. That was like the one moment where it's like, and obviously this is not in the same space or whatever no. right now. But the initial moment was like, well, there's a real dude there. Yes, like, I, I don't know. Yeah, but they always yeah, do a good job. There's it's only twice where I saw. A vague, like it's always vague because there's like a faraway shot of the mirror, but I was like, oh, that's clearly not Nick Cage. But it's like not the same as like, remember the scene in Face Off where they have like the two dudes get pushed together and it's like, that's not Nicolas Cage and that's not John Travolta, like right before they get the <laughs> face cut off. Uh huh. It's this, this is better than that. This is way better than that. Yeah. yeah. So. It's just like, I, I felt there was like a moment in film history with like a Alien Covenant where Michael Fassbender just gets to be oh, yeah. touch touching himself and everything. And I was like, we did it. We made it. But then it's like, this did a pretty good job. Like, no, no, no. Years well, earlier. What's crazy about alien covenant is they're interacting, not just touching each other. Cause that's been done. It's the, uh, it's items. They share items like with each other, handing stuff to each other. And they're like, in one put- shot, handing a flute to each other that stays on screen. And then they're both interacting with that flute. Yeah, I was just like, oh, Ridley Scott's just stunting right now. Yeah, like, exactly. He's, he's but this so scene, the thing, there's a couple of shots in the scene that actually kind of amaze me because there's a couple of pans, like awkward pans, that have both characters in the shot. And mm-hmm. I'm like, you have to do that awkward, like, scoop. Sorry. Like, is this, like, motion controlled to look awkward? No, but it's awkward? like a weird scoop. Like, it's like, it looks handheld. And I'm like, they had to do this weird handheld thing twice because it's not yeah. just a simple pan. It's like this well, weird like, scoop. Dead Ringers did a lot of, like, work in this field, but it's, like, computer-controlled, like, the exact pacing yeah. for Jeremy Irons twice, so you can do that. But this is but very yeah, clearly, there's, like, like a, a goofy handheld quality to some of this yeah. to give it that reality level. 100%. And it, like, are they, like, coding it to look like that, but it's actually a steady cam goofing yeah. the same way? Like, yeah, there's some there's some. It's pretty impressive. Stuff. But what I've learned, too, about film, especially from David Fincher... Like, there's this shot, you've seen Dra- Girls Dragon Tattoo? Yeah. There's a shot of where they're driving into the long driveway of Christopher Plummer's house. Mm-hmm. And he shows you the real footage, and it's, like, super bumply because they're driving in a car. Okay. But then he shows you how, frame by frame, they recenter it so it looks like they one smooth it. things. They stabilize yeah. it frame by frame. So there's a part of me that wonders if they shot one of the scenes wide and one of the scenes, like, proper. And then for the proper one, for the wide one, they just reorientated the film mm. i don't know it's i assume knowing that this is like the coppola brothers and spike jones all involved with this stuff like spike spike would find some crazy way to do these forced perspective shots right type of thing like that's mm. something he's very good at the three no the... what well, we did talk <laughs> yeah. about the three the three is now, yeah. a, a, a script I, i'm happy i never got made but it's great that ron livingston thinks it's the greatest thing he's ever read 
I don't know. I just have like minor notes throughout of just like being impressed with like people showing up just for, hey, it's John Cusack for like two seconds. Yeah. Like, oh, Catherine Keener's here. Like Maggie Gyllenhaal, I forgot was in this. Uh, just kind of little people along the way that kind of mm-hmm. show up. Oh, Judy Greer is like the waitress in the yep. awkward pie. Before scene. Judy Greer was a thing, but yes, she was definitely in this movie. Yeah, she gets a couple good scenes, like just this kind of. I don't know, desperation around Charlie and, and those was really sad. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I guess that's that's kind of the tall and short of my thoughts on it. Okay, uh, so we like to end every episode focusing on an MVP of this, but being that this whole entire batch is devoted towards Nicolas Cage, we decided yeah. that, like, who's going to be our runner-up MVP for... Uh, this like batch type of thing. Cause I, I assume for you and it would be for me, Nicholas Cage took this show, which he did. However, my, he, my MVP is my first and second go to Nicholas Cage because of the two different characters he's playing. So it's really my third place this time, but yeah, I'd half thought about like, uh, Donald Kaufman is my favorite <laughs> contributor to this. Cause he's just such oh, a fun no, no, Charlie would have been my second. Donald's my favorite character in this whole movie. Yeah. Yeah. So anyways, but um, go ahead. so Nathan, who would you, who do you got for this, this one? Well, I ended up like, just going with this weird thought on it because i yeah sue me i kind of went with uh susan orlean on this because she let this happen despite okay despite how off the wall the initial like like there's there's quotes and stuff from her about like being handed this and just be like what like no this isn't my book like the like this could have all fallen apart but i would imagine there would have been sometimes an option when an, sometimes I don't know what the ins and outs of this one, but sometimes an option is like Stephen King options his books and completely yeah. walks away. Sure, and so then somebody but can then, add it after the, but then is really crappy about it later. You know, yes, he, like, but I think oh, yes, Stanley Kubrick. That I don't know, no, but I, my my point is my masterpiece. But my point like, is okay. that like she would have no say. Like there's a possibility that they option her book and she has no say that she didn't like that Charlie what Charlie did. Right, but there's like quotes from her and stuff about like kind of coming around to it and stuff and like actually appreciating what was going on mm-hmm. which i think is just huge to be fair stephen to... king has also come around on aspects of, of stanley kubrick's to the shining i know like it, it's based on like an old dance macabre like he hates he, he hates the change he makes to jack Tor- torrance and he hates it so much but he understands that the movie is beautiful has amazing the music the movie it's, it's and it yeah. looks amazing so I, I don't mean to like feed yeah, into yeah. that narrative of of that big thing but whatever but no but that's a good, uh, but it's the point that i was trying to get across so you're saying that susan orlean she eventually like she, she like, came took around it to in, it well and i i couldn't imagine like the weird peer pressure around like well spike jones is in, interested in doing this screenplay and like we really like it like our we're gonna make it this way and like all this kind of stuff I and mean, you could put the kibosh on it and be a real jerk mm-hmm. but instead kind of like seeing how there's like more to be found in like two authors like looking at the same thing and like trying to find harmonies from different areas of life and all this kind of stuff. Like it kind of lets this stew develop. That's different. And the book's still there and I can read it and it's, it's got its own like vantage point on it, but just kind of that maturity, I guess. And like letting yourself be in this movie, like with this weird CD affair with Chris Cooper and all this stuff like that happens in the final act is so off the wall. Uh, just kind of rolling with that I think is just imp- like impressive in this weird way. Like I, if I'm going to choose an author, cause the, uh, the other obvious choice for me would have been like Charlie cause he's huge to this movie. 
Yes. But he's his side of the story gets really expressed in the movie. So I was kind of didn't feel I needed to point at it at all. Whereas like, I, I don't know, something about that element of uh, having your work desecrated in a way, but being cool with it. Or to be like, fair, like her book had like a huge zeitgeist in the beginning and then like in the 90s. Yeah. Well, when it first came out and then all of a sudden, like people started looking back on it and being like, oh, this isn't that good. There's sure. nothing there. This is, a, this is a little formless. This is a little like musing or whatever. It has yeah. no structure and no point to it. It's just a bunch of like long drawn out passages where she wrote about what things she thought about. Like it wasn't sure. It was a great article that turned into a mediocre book. Is that the verdict, I guess? I guess the consensus, yeah. So, okay, okay. so my MVP, but before we get into it, I want to point out that, like, uh, inherently speaking, I, I have nothing wrong with adaptations. I I think too much, like, blood, sweat, and tears are laid out for adaptations and not going the way people want them to go. So, for example, yeah. like, I'm thinking specifically of, like, the Lord of the Rings Hobbit films, okay? okay. In my mind... If they someone takes an adaptation and they adapt it into a movie, you're not changing. People always talk about how like a movie will ruin your childhood or ruin that book. I'm like, no, that book is still there. Like what you said, Susan Orlean's The Orchid Thief is still there. You can go read it. That doesn't change yeah. anything. Yeah, yeah. We just have something different now, and it's a vision that you might not like, and that's fine. But it's just something different, and you have to mm-hmm. see film narrative, film storytelling is different than like literary storytelling. Yeah, yeah. So. My argument is like actually I picked Charlie Kaufman for my MVP. Yeah, I, I mean he's he was my right there on my yes. forefront of my head too. Because but adaptation yeah, yeah. is my favorite is my favorite adaptation of anything of all time. Okay, like it's yeah. because he doesn't he doesn't care, and it's like it's for me it's like the zeitgeist point of like why you don't have to be faithful to something because well you're not telling that story necessarily you're telling your own story. Sure, sure. I, f- I feel like in the story, he very much cares and is very anxious about what he's doing. But yes, it, it, it is made as but I said is, faithful. So... I was making my yeah, argument yeah. based upon faithfulness. He's not faithful to the story of the Orchid Thief. No. And that's enough, my point. Yes. Is because somebody yeah. who was a fan of the Orchid Thief and wanted to go see an Orchid Thief film would have hated <laughs> adaptation the way that mm-hmm. someone who is classically a fan of The Hobbit wanted exactly that film like that filmed as the book into film hates Peter Jackson's the Hobbit. Like what's all this extra stuff? And or what is it? What's all of this extra? Anything. My point yeah. is like the book exists, the movie exists and you kind of have to treat them separately. Yeah. Something about that, like being rearticulated in a different medium is one of those like great, like artists, cultural exchange kind of things that I love. Like the, the, it's hard to say. But whatever, like that kind of meeting of the minds, like the kind of transformations that happen when when something like that happens is just kind of a, a rich, fertile area for, for things I like. So, yeah, I guess this movie, having those two authors' voices kind of meet and like crush into each other is kind of the magic on display here. And the anxieties and stuff around it and all, but, all that stuff rings really well. Yeah, yeah but the, the argument that I'm making is that Charlie's voice rises to the surface, and I think it's. I think this movie is better. It's like more honest for him to do it that way than. And I think the story is better for it too. Yeah, I think like anything, any other way of making Arc Thief into a film would have been horrible. 
or or like just one of a bunch of forgotten things right five or six out of ten is what i'm trying to say (laughs) sure or like yeah another like award season thing that just goes into a dump the reader the reader maybe (laughs) uh i guess we we don't really like we've talked about oscars in kind of a weird bitter way before like i found it a little weird that like the only awarded performance in this movie is chris cooper and like he's fine like i was he plays never an eccentric really... so they're gonna give it to an eccentric i guess but like who won, who of... won best actor that year? uh that year adrian brody for yeah the so and i remember being angry about that for the penis yeah. right oh my god i was i was looking at the that for that like the that season Honestly, mm-hmm. like Jack Nicholson was a big one for me that year too, because about Schmidt is probably my favorite Alexander Payne, mm-hmm. and like him kind of tapping into a different part of Jack Nicholson was kind of. Let's cool. look at, but let's look at the legacy of an actor, right? Adrian Brody, yeah. what has he done for the, the entirety of his career other than the penis? I I I enjoy his bit roles in Wes Anderson stuff, but generally speaking, yeah, he hasn't really. But he, he, in it. all, and, and can you honestly say that he adds anything to? A Wes Anderson film himself. Grant, I, I, I genuinely like his weird, over-the-top villain character in Grand Budapest, but okay. it, it's, yeah. Generally speaking, like him as like Arnold Schwarzenegger Jr. in Predators is like the other thought in my mind for Adrian Brody. So it's just like, yeah, I don't know what's up with Adrian Brody. It's weird that so this is what he I'm just saying, like, looked so sad and forlorn in that movie that they gave him a trophy for it. Like it's well, that's it's it, great like casting. This, the penis yeah. hasn't aged well because of like Roman Polanski stuff. But yeah. uh, but in all fairness, like I don't think adaptations, oh, which being incidentally about also won best adapted screenplay. So this didn't get that Oscar either. Of course it didn't. And I guess Roman Polanski won best picture. This one was best picture, right? Sorry, uh, ad- director. Roman but not Polanski best won. Yeah, Roman Polanski won best. What won that best year. picture that year? Oh, Chicago. Oh yeah, that was a bad year for the Oscars, man. <laughs> Holy crap, yeah. such a bad year. Yeah, because like, you're, if you're telling me, I forgot about about Smith. I didn't know it came out the same year. I, I wouldn't have given Jack the Oscar over top of Nicholas. Um, it was just the only other like in the running for me. Yeah, like, I was like, oh, those are so different. These things, but yeah. But it's yeah, and the Oscars. What I don't just broken, like Chris Cooper. It's just like he's he's just like a minor voice in this. Who, like honestly, Brian Cox. Oh, Catherine Zeta Jones. Who for Chicago? Catherine Catherine Zeta Jones beat Meryl Streep. Yeah, Meryl gets nominated all the time and wins yeah, once she, or twice. Has she only won like uh, once or twice? Right? She's won at least twice Best Actress and then Best Supporting Actress for Kramer versus Kramer. That's right. I think so. She's got three. I understand that she gets nominated all the time, but there's a reason why she gets nominated all the time. She leads her genre. She she leads her class of actors mm-hmm. by a lot. And to be and to be fair, like if we ever get to the world where there's no best actor, best actress, and it's just best actor, Meryl would still have like beaten some of the men in her years. Like just best performer that yes. year. Yeah. Anyways, Meryl is yeah, Meryl's a, a force to be reckoned with and someone that people should be scared to compete with. And there is lots of people that are openly scared. But like Catherine Zeta-Jones for Chicago is not even one of Catherine Zeta-Jones's best performances. I was is, happy John C. Riley was nominated that year, though. Yeah, I, like, but again, for happened. Chicago, like not for Magnolia. Mr. Cellophane, dude. Not for, not for Magnolia or Boogie Nights. Like, yeah, Chicago's not like, a good movie. It's not a good movie. 
I haven't revisited it. But yeah, it's Anyways, it's been a long it's time. It's Sorry to bring it up, get into a negative zone. Right. But like, yeah, there's a lot of like performing like there, I, I this was another movie where there's kind of an embarrassment of riches of like supporting MVPs mm-hmm. kind of thing. Oh, but yes. I, it's this author's thing that was really like the the key to me. And then I decided to give it to I assume we've, we've done like the same two times in this season already. So I wanted to kind of like spread the love a little bit. Yeah, and give both authors a little voice here because I thought they both contributed. Uh, oh, for sure. Way, so. No, and I'm glad yeah. that you and I were on the same page on this. I mean, I would never. Okay. I would never. It's the writing. Put, I would never yeah. put Susan or Lean on my list. Type of thing as of MVP. Uh, sure. Just because, of, like, I don't see her involvement in the movie I saw, mm-hmm. and she is responsible for one of my least favorite sequences in the movie I saw. I uh, find yeah, yeah, yeah. I find the Meryl Streep. The early Meryl Streep, Chris Cooper stuff sometimes to be really dull, and then we dry, when, then we yeah. get back to Charlie. I'm like, oh, this is the movie I want. Yeah, but I understand why we need to have it because it's it's also Charlie proving to the audience that the Susan Orlean movie would have been really not good. <laughs> yeah, but anyways, I it's fine. So. We don't need to disagree. Yeah. Like, there's no point to us disagreeing. I appreciate your point, but you were all right. Like, Meryl was next on my list. Uh, Chris was eventually on my list. Um, Brian Cox was Brian on Cox my list. Brian Cox was on my list. Ron Livingston. Just, it's just that kind of Shea Wiggum problem where like he's brilliant, but he's barely there, yeah. you know? But yeah, yeah, can you be brilliant for a moment? I, to be fair, you can be brilliant for a moment. And there's lots of people that have proven... Like Ned Betty. Ned Betty's in, brilliant yeah. in Network. Like if you're going to go Network MVP, is like, is it the one scene though? Like Because Ned Betty just stops the movie and rip, lifts it all up. but And then wins know. an Oscar for it. Or was nominated. He, I think he was nominated. It was okay. one of the shortest performances ever nominated. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyways, yeah. my point is like I don't a short scene like can steal away a whole movie. Brian Cox, mm-hmm. I think, doesn't steal that. I think he just adds so magnificently to it. And yeah. uh, and Ron Livingston just is perfectly just like this. Like this is the guy who just came off of Office Space and was like, okay, this guy's kind of funny. <laughs> like, where did he go? Why is he? There's just a football on a poster on yeah. his wall. Like, it's it's like, what is this? He plays the best character? bro agent. Like it's just, and it's yeah. like Charlie has to deal with him. Anyways, mm-hmm. uh, I think we'll just go with our little Oscar conversation as our denouement on this one. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, like I mean, I know you said you had a question this week, but can we just put it off to further weeks? And because I think we naturally kind of just went off onto a rant about oscars about trophies and how that all works Which, again so yeah. that's okay Kay. uh but yeah if anybody wants to send us a question or some feedback uh you can tweet us at okay video podcast on twitter uh or send us emails ryan at okvideo.ca or nathan at okvideo.ca um next week we're going to be looking at the last movie ever released on the laserdisc format uh bringing out the dead which obviously isn't the criteria for why we chose it <laughs> but it's just a fun little fact uh until next time i'm nathan and i'm ryan bye bye for now